This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome back to Books and Nachos, the Vendanza Media podcast about everything in print and everything James Bond. I'm your host, Stuart in L.A., and we're now up to Ian Fleming's second 007 adventure, Live and Let Die. Before I get into it, just a reminder to our listeners, we're not following movie order. Over at our sister podcast, nowplayingpodcast.com, we're doing the movies. They're not syncing up with what we're doing here at Books and Nachos. We're following the order in which Ian Fleming wrote and published his stories. So, Live and Let Die, Second Adventure. It was actually written before Casino Royale was published, and before that novel became an instantaneous critical and commercial success. I do wonder if had he waited and seen what public response would be, whether he would have picked a different adventure, or we don't know. But it was written before. It was published exactly one year after Casino Royale in April 1954. When last we left Bond, he was grieving over the death of Vesper Lind, a spy who he was going to run away with, get married, leave the service, have a normal life. That was robbed from him because she was being pressured by the Soviets into being a double agent and cracked under the pressure, killed herself. Bond only re-enlisted with the service so that he could hurt Smirsch. Smirsch being, I think it translates as death despise. It's a pre-KGB organization by the Russians, by the Soviets, to hurt the West. Bond doesn't care about the politics. He only knows that he wants to avenge the woman that he loved. So naturally, his next adventure is taking on all the Negroes of Harlem. Believe it or not, that's where they go with this. Bond is told by his boss, M, that they're trying to cut off Smirsch cash flow and that the Soviets are getting a lot of funding from pirate gold. That there's a ship that's leaving from Jamaica, coming to America, and funneling old pirate gold through black establishments, pawn shops as such, all the way up to New York City, and that that revenue from the pirate gold is being used to funnel back into Soviet operations, anti-British, anti-American activities. And the man organizing this exchange of funds is Mr. Big, self-described as the first of the great Negro criminals. The CIA and regular law enforcement channels are afraid to pull him in. His influence is so great over all black people with his voodoo powers that he can just beat a voodoo drum and create race riots from here into Arkansas. And indeed, every black person that Bond is going to meet is pretty much under Mr. Big's thumb and does exactly what he says, either because they're a loyal henchman or they're afraid of his black magic, giving the whole thing a rather queasy, racially backward overtone. Almost immediately, I'm concerned that I'm not going to have the same positive experience I did with Casino Royale, that it's really kind of been tainted by an adventure that seems inappropriate for many reasons, none the least of which is that this operation doesn't sound illegal. I mean, Mr. Big owns the Isle of Surprise, which is part of Jamaica, where the pirate booty has been found. It's his. It's his land. He has the right to do whatever he wants with it. If he wants to ship it into America and change it for dollars below its cash value, I might add, then that's 
his prerogative. And should they prove that he then takes that cash and uses it to fund Soviet enterprises, well, we've seen recent examples of this in history. We shut them down. I mean, you call banks. You hire lawyers. If you think that, you know, money is going to terrorist organizations, you don't need to call assassins. You don't need an MI6 agent like Bond. It seems a peculiar adventure to give him, and one that doesn't have much hope of giving him the kind of vindication he's looking for with avenging Vesper Lynn. It may not be illegal, but it looks improper, at least to the English at this time. you got to keep in mind, 1953, Jamaica is still part of the Commonwealth of England. They own it. And so, of course, they're going to see any black people that are taking its resources, its treasures, and using it for personal gain as an affront to British control. It kind of comes off as, how dare these black people take what's ours and use it to fund communism and social activities that give them more independence and personal betterment. Now, it should also be pointed out that Ian Fleming wrote this novel living in Jamaica. This was his home at this point. All of the Bond stories were written in Goldeneye in Jamaica, and that he's probably very accurate in capturing this attitude. This probably was the attitude of other retiree Englishmen, his contemporaries at that time. But I dare say he really looks like he's on the wrong side of history with this one. I think that what he sees as communist plots and corrupting of America and that these these social movements are socialist, I think it's easier to see now, really, that, you know, this is civil rights. This is about dignity, equality, respect. This is not something that we want to see the British become involved with. We don't want to see England keep the black man down in America. So early on, I'm dropping the idea that I can enjoy the metaphorical ideas of Casino Royale, how it sort of played into the post-World War II Yalta Conference, who's going to control the destiny of Europe, all that stuff that I thought was cool. I'm not expecting that same level of, of writing and insight here. I'm more concerned at this point is my ability to enjoy the pulp story, the adventure part of it, going to be tainted as well by this unfortunate racial politics. It's difficult to do when you have Bond running around Harlem with Felix dressed in a darkened hair and a zoot suit trying to fit in with the culture and using the N-word, and I don't mean Negro. And they encounter henchmen that are named Teehee and blabbermouth and they talk in a heavy dialect that's well it's peppered with lots of i'll just go ahead and read it and i must say that if i catch you making up to that dope i'll just naturally jump the hide of your sweet ass there's pretty much every conversation bond has with an underling i'm expecting mammy amos and andy and the minstrel to come sauntering in here at any minute. It's just too much. But I do try to keep in mind that Bond has exhibited unflattering estimates of 
others before. I mentioned in Casino Royale, he had a lot of anti-women statements, and it really helped that novel in some weird way by seeing him so angry at women at the beginning, to see him turn, fall in love, and then lose a woman. Well, that created a new understanding. That was character development. I was hoping if I could swallow sort of the heavy stereotypes that Fleming was throwing me at the beginning, there would be a similar transformation as he worked down the line, that he would end up meeting black people that would become allies. It really doesn't happen that way, unfortunately. What's more, he starts showing even more contempt for America in general. He is palling around with Felix, and they're constantly having a back and forth about American cars, and Bond can't eat our food, and he just seems unimpressed with everything. His reaction to seeing New York City is, oh, this would be a great place to drop a nuke, and then when he goes to Florida, he's thinking of the legendary El Dorado, but calls it El Dolorado. I think that he sees it as a place for retirees to go and die. He just drips with contempt, and just disdain. I think he really, you know, I saw him as someone that craved order, and I think really the melting pot concept of America is really upsetting to him. I almost feel like he judges us by the fact that we allow, you know, his first observation in New York is that we allow negresses to dry limousines, and I really feel like his racial attitudes are part of a larger disdain for American culture in general. And so what a bad idea to send him to America then if this is what he's going to give us. Even the voodoo angle feels paltry, even though we're expected to understand that Mr. Big has this sway based on ritualism. At the end of the day, Bond gets sent a voodoo clock that sort of has a inference that his heart is going to stop soon, that he's going to be killed. The only real voodoo-y thing they have here is solitaire. And this is sort of a weird Bond girl. It's Mr. Big's fiance. It's a white woman. She's the daughter of a slave owner. She was performing in a Haitian cafe. She is a telepath and she reads cards. And Mr. Big has whisked her away to New York so that he can have her skills to help him advance his cause. I guess it doesn't really even make sense because he already has every black person whispering in his ear what's going on. He already has a very strong network of spies that let him know everything almost telepathically. It seems redundant to have a psychic in here too. But indeed, there is solitaire and that's their one voodoo conceit. We're expected to believe that maybe, just maybe, there is something to all this mysticism because she can read the cards. And it's written like she's a prisoner of Mr. Big. She comes to Bond. She asks him to break her out of captivity. They hop on a train. Mr. Big pursues them. They head down to Florida. Felix meets a really bad end there. He's tagged along and he gets caught up with one of this henchman, a pock-faced guy who has him dropped into a shark tank and he loses a leg in his arm. His injuries are so bad. I didn't think he was going to live, and then when Bond sees him in the hospital, I don't think he's going to be back. I don't know how he's going to function with the shark bites that he's received. They seem to be the death knell for his days as a CIA agent, if not his death in general. It was rather alarming. I do want to say things get much better once Bond finally leaves America and heads back to Jamaica. He's put in contact with a British agent, Strangway, and his 
black assistant quarrel, and I'm having deja vu because I just watched the movie Dr. No last week. You can go ahead and head over to nowplayingpodcast.com, hear my thoughts on that movie. Well, these are characters from that movie, and the adventure that happens in the last third of the novel seems very familiar to the movie plot of Dr. No. I don't know if the book of Dr. No follows the movie. We'll know in about five weeks when we get to that novel, but this kind of feels like a mini version of Dr. No, complete with the Isle of Surprise, this voodoo island that has all of this curse associated to it, and everyone that goes there ends up dead or being attacked or disappears, and Bond sets out to find the gold and thwart Mr. Big. This is where they have their showdown. I'm not entirely sure why Mr. Big is here on a yacht, but he captures Bond in solitaire and has got plans to drag them by boat through coral reefs. And so they get cut up, and then their blood will attract sharks that will finish them off. All this is very dramatic, but Bond has planted bombs on the boat, and they go off before they're cut up too badly, and Quarrel comes to the rescue in a rowboat. Oddly enough, I'm finding myself liking Strangway and Quarrel a lot better than Bond at this point. I kind of wish that the adventure had just been here, in Jamaica. It was more fun to explore a potential scary island than it was all of that race-baiting, anti-American crap that I had to suffer through for the first half of the story. I'm not even sure Bond liked it either, because I'm not sure he's getting with the girl. You know, that's always a thing with Bond in the movies, is he's a ladies' man, but Solitaire, while saved from Mr. Big, is called Solitaire for a reason. It's explained early, she doesn't like men. She doesn't get with men. I don't know if that means she's a lesbian, or whether she's just picky, whatever. Bond claims she has a flirtatious look in her eyes as the novel comes to a close, but I'm not sure that means he's going to be getting anything out of her. Other than a cold card reading. Yep, I don't think he enjoyed this one. I know I didn't. Everything that had been going so well in Casino Royale seemed absent here. I'm going to go ahead and predict that we can just skip over this. Let live and let die die. And we'll move on to Moonraker. That's going to be the third novel. We'll take a look at that next week. I tend to think that there won't be a lot of connection here. I'm not sure that anything was gained by reading Live and Let Die from having also read Casino Royale. They set me up for a vengeance storyline that didn't pan out. It's much more of an episodic adventure standalone. I, I feel like hopefully that'll be true with Moonraker and we can leave behind the bad taste that was Live and Let Die and move on to one that's closer to Casino Royale or a good Bond movie. And we will get to Moonraker next. Thanks for joining me. Keep reading. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2012. All rights reserved.